Well, we've stepped into this time called The Portrait. If you're new to New Hope, um, we've been working through this study for quite a number of weeks now. And if you find yourself way behind in the study, this is week um, 29 this week. You can go to iTunes, you can pick it up there, or you can pick it up on the New Hope website, and you can and listen along there and get caught up if you want to. Last week, we looked at John chapter 9, and we saw in this period of time this healing that took place. And tonight, what you're about to see may stimulate some questions. One of the things that we do on Saturday night is we take questions that you have at the end of the teaching time. If you've not been here before, you may not be familiar with that. And if you're not comfortable asking questions in a public setting like this about the things that you heard, you can always text your questions in. And then later in the evening, they're going to put the questions up on the screen so we can take those on. But this series here called The Portrait is what we really want to focus in on because John 1.18 says this, that no one has ever seen God before, but Jesus has explained Him. And so we've been working our way through the book of John, find ourselves now in week chapter 28 with this portrait series unfolding. We see Jesus last week healing a man who was born blind. Now, we understand that for the last six months of Jesus' life, things really began to ramp up. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 9, is the final six months of Jesus' life. From chapter 9 to chapter 20, it's very much compressed in the activities of Jesus encountering people before the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that's where we're stepping into John chapter 9. We were looking last week at this healing. We find that the shadow of the cross is looming over Jesus. He's very aware of it. He said to the disciples, if you might remember from last week, earlier in chapter 9, that he was aware that nighttime was approaching and that he must be busy doing the work of the Father while it's still day. But because nighttime was approaching, meaning the crucifixion, he was aware that the shadow of the cross was looming over him. Now he's making his way into Jerusalem, and he finds outside the temple an individual who's been born blind. Now, to ask you to help yourself tonight step into the world of an individual who's living in those circumstances, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes completely. Go ahead and close them. And keep your eyes closed for the first couple minutes while I begin to describe this individual's situation. I'll tell you when you can open them in just a minute, but take yourself to this time of this individual living in the first century. He's born blind. It's all he's known all the way through childhood. His world is confined to a very narrow, utter blackness. He knows that he will probably never marry. He enters into his teenage years never ever, ever able to engage with the other teenagers. Never, ever able to play games just to go for a walk in the country. He enters into manhood aware that there will be no career for him. There's no job waiting. He can smell dust, but he's never seen it. He can hear birds singing, but he's never seen them. He's never looked upon the face of his parents. Children occasionally make fun of him and run up and hit him and then run away. Individuals walk by talking about him. Some make him the subject of a theological discussion and say, 
how could this man have been born blind? Maybe his parents sinned, or perhaps he sinned. And he finds himself the attention of individuals as they walk into the temple simply because they're willing to throw money into his cup because he's a beggar. Until one particular day, he hears something that no one has ever said to him before. Individuals are beginning a theological conversation about his status as someone who's living in utter blackness. And they begin saying to a rabbi that's with them, Master, who sinned that this man would be born blind? His parents or himself? And he hears the thunderous voice of a rabbi say, It was neither. It was that the glory of God would be put on display. Now, he still can't see anything, but through his acute hearing, he hears someone kneel down next to him. And he can hear dust being gathered and scraped. And suddenly, he feels wet moisture upon his cheeks. This rabbi has taken his face in his hands and begins smearing mud on his eyes. It's like a clay. Without further words being spoken, the rabbi commands him to get up and go to the pool of Siloam, which is on the far southern end of the city. And so he needs someone to escort him. And he stumbles and finds his way to the pool of Siloam. And he does what the master says to him. Wash your face in the water of the pool of Siloam. So he reaches his hands into the water and splashes his face. And you can open your eyes now. Because he sees what you see. A world full of vibrant color. He looks around and he's seen things that he's never seen before. When birds fly by, he can actually see the flap of wings. He knows what dust is now. He understands because of this vision that's been given to him. In the midst of all this, he keeps hearing in his mind the words that this rabbi said. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. It was that the glory of God might be revealed in him. And now he sees what that one said to him, that the power of God has been displayed in his life. And he begins making his way back to the temple to find this one who's healed him, only this one is gone. But on his way, he encounters his neighbors and people in the community who had given him money. And they look at him and they understand This is the one that we used to give money to. This is the one that sat outside the temple and begged. No, it couldn't be him. He looks like him, but no, it's not possible. He's seeing, how is he walking on his own unassisted? And they're so confused, they don't know what to do. We're going to pick up now where we left off last week because we left off with them being confused. Go with me to John chapter 9. If you're new here, you'll understand that there's Bibles in the pew racks here in front of you, but you'll also see this passage up on the screen. Because in this setting, in chapter 9, verse 13, we find the very surprised neighbors who came across this blind man, and they don't know what else to do, so they escort him into the temple to talk to the Pharisees. John chapter 9, verse 13 says this, "...they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind." Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. 
So the neighbors are unable to comprehend. They bring him to the Pharisees. It's only natural. They're seeking an explanation. This is unprecedented. It's never happened. Now that, the Pharisees study this event in such detail only as further proof that what Jesus did, what's written here, actually happened. They are really investigating this. And understand, uh, the Pharisees take a bad rap many times because they did so many things that were antagonistic towards Jesus. Much of it rightly deserved. But understand, they were charged as the custodians of the faith. It was their responsibility. They were to watch over for the sake of the nation of Israel the direction of the nation in matters of religion. And so the Pharisees had this responsibility to investigate situations like this. But in the midst of this, they should find themselves praising God for what has happened. Instead, they're looking for ways to prosecute. Because why? It's the Sabbath. Did Jesus know that it was the Sabbath? Certainly, He knew that it was the Sabbath. Did He care? Well, yes, I think He did, and He didn't. I'm sure that He was very aware and that He did care that it was the Sabbath. But not to the degree that it would stop him from what he was doing. Now understand some of the rules for the Sabbath. One was this, you could not practice medicine on the Sabbath day. Shabbat is a day set aside for no human activity that would be strenuous. So no healing unless a life was in danger. If a life was in danger, you could step in. But this man's not in danger. He was born blind. There's no danger to his life. So, under a man-made rule, there's one violation. The second one that was a violation is it was forbidden to knead bread, meaning make dough, or to make clay, pottery of any kind. And Jesus had made clay and spread it on the guy's face. So he engaged in a work activity. So the Pharisees accused Jesus of failing to obey Shabbat. He's breaking the Sabbath law. And what we find right out of the gate is that Jesus is a source of division for people. And the same is true today. You want to start some division at any point, you just go into a group of people and say, what do you think of Jesus? Who is He? And you know it just explodes because everybody has an opinion. Many people refuse to face the evidence of who Jesus is. And so they want to evade the issue. We don't find the Pharisees evading it tonight. They engage Full bore. This is what you're about to see. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. So the Pharisees begin the interrogation very subtly. They're just gently asking, What did he do? How did this happen? So he repeats all that he knows very succinctly what Jesus did and his own actions. He went to the pool and washed his face. Now understand, they're coming at this from a very biased position. Their position is that Jesus has broken the Sabbath law. Now, not because he broke God's laws. Understand, he broke man-made laws. Laws that men had added to God's laws. These are extra-biblical laws. God didn't say that they couldn't do these things that they're accusing Him of. So we have to ask ourselves, Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. He knew that there were laws in place. Why heal this man on the Sabbath? 
knowing that it was going to cause this kind of controversy. Why this man, at this time, on this day, why do it? There's blind people all around the nation of Israel. He could have waited till Monday. Why on Shabbat? What is Jesus' motive? Well, if you back up to verse 3 from last week, you see Jesus said, I'm going to put God on display. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Now, the religious leaders prided themselves in keeping the minutia of the law. They kept the rules to the letter. But at the same time, they were ignoring the much more important issues like mercy. Jesus talked to them about this all the time. Look with me up on the screen, Matthew 12, verse 11. And he said to them, speaking to the Pharisees, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But they've corrupted the Sabbath. They've turned it from a day of glorifying God into a means of legalistic self-glorification so that everyone would look at them and say, look how great they are. They keep the letter of the law. They honor the Sabbath. Go with me to verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So we find the Pharisees, the majority, they're not the everyone, but they are the majority. They're reasoning from prejudice. Jesus could not be from God. Those who are from God keep the Sabbath. And so their conclusion is, this man is not from God. As a matter of fact, you'll see in verse 24, they actually called Jesus a sinner. So the antagonists concede the truth of the miracle. Something has happened here. But here's what they're implying, church. They're implying it must have been done through the power of Satan because he couldn't be from God. It has to be done through the power of Satan. So they're taking their stand upon the false idea that there's been a Sabbath violation. Therefore, this one could not be of God. Now we understand in looking at the text, there's a minority group. And they have a counterposition. We see them actually saying, how could a sinner do such signs? It's not possible. The sign is so extraordinary, no one other than God could do this. Only one from God can open blind eyes. Jesus opened blind eyes. Therefore, Jesus is from God. That's the counterposition. So we've got these two groups and a division erupts. A schisma. Look with me on the screen at the definition. Schisma means a split or a gap. They're torn in two as a group of people. Now the division tells us there's at least a small minority who actually believe Jesus might be who He said He was. We understand Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees. Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Pharisees. They believe that Jesus was probably exactly who He said He was. That's why Nicodemus came to Him at night. So you begin to feel the weight of the issue that these religious leaders have to deal with. How can a wicked man be doing the works of God? What do we do with this? So in the spiritual realm, and we always know that there's a spiritual realm going on in situations like this. Scripture tells us in Ephesians 6, we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. 
so we can be sure that the spiritual world is watching this battle and Satan at this moment is repulsed for a moment because there's friendliness coming from the Pharisees. So quickly, the enemy turns his attention back to the beggar and the beggar now becomes the focus and the healing now becomes the pivot point on which the whole argument will turn. First, it was who did this? Then it was the rules have been broken and now they're going to go after the miracle itself. Verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now his faith has been openly challenged. He's openly challenged by them. He's either got to confess or deny, and he does not recoil. There's no hesitation here. He doesn't need a degree in theology to see what those with sight their entire life cannot see. He recognizes the source of the power, and he recognizes the character of the one who belongs to God. He is a prophet. What is a prophet? According to a biblical definition, a prophetes, the one who is a mouthpiece of God. So understand the progression. If you were here last week especially, you heard this. First he said, the man Jesus healed me. Now he's taken another step in God's direction. The prophet, the one who is the spokesman for God, he is the one who did this. So what's happening? We're watching a spiritual journey here. His eyes are getting wider and wider while the Pharisees are blinded with a dark mist. They can't understand what's going on. Now, at first, the, the beggar was focused solely on the work of Christ. Now he's beginning to understand the magnitude of what's going on here. His knowledge is increasing as he hears them arguing. But they've already said, this man is not of God. Yet he's saying this one is of God. The leaders do not want Jesus to have a title like Moses or Elijah or Noah. This guy's calling him a prophet. Now they begin grasping at straws because they're unable to intimidate him. They're going to start saying now that Jesus plotted the whole thing and he switched beggars just so that he can confuse people. Go with me to verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? This is beginning to smell like a court trial, isn't it? They're bringing witnesses in the room. They're suspecting that they can bring some sort of a conviction against Jesus. And the best way to get the evidence that they need is interrogate the parents. So let's drag the parents in. And the arraignment begins. Evidently, according to the next passage we're going to look at, without their son present. Now think of this. You just had your eyes closed for quite a few minutes. If you lived in that world for 30-some years as he did, you would have never looked upon the face of your parents. He's never seen mom and dad. He's never looked upon the face of his parents. They're brought into the room and he's dismissed. He can actually see their face, but he's told to go stand out in the hallway, apparently, according to the next passage. 
and they begin to assault them with three questions. Here's the questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how does he now see? And if they refuse to answer, or if they answer contrary to what the leaders want, they're going to put themselves in jeopardy. So watch their response. Verse 20. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. That's a very cautious diplomatic answer, isn't it? They're being very careful. They identify him. And they say, yeah, he was born blind. But they're carefully evading the last question. He's legally responsible. He can speak to that issue. Oh, what's going on there? Not even an opinion? Their son has been blind more than 30 years. Can they not even offer a response? Why? They're going to avoid any further interrogation because they fear excommunication from the synagogue. So the authorities had already decided Jesus is not the one. He is not the promised one. And they have said that anyone who would stand in opposition to that will suffer expulsion from the synagogue. There were two forms of expulsion from the synagogue at this period of time. One was a 30-day expulsion, and the other one was permanent. Go forward with me to verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, to the contrary, the parents clearly know who healed their son. Otherwise, they would not have been afraid. They obviously know who carried this out. They've heard people talking in the street. They've been brought into the trial. There's no other reason for them to be afraid to answer the question other than the fact they know what the leaders have said and they understand that if they respond contrary to what they want, they could be expelled. Now here's the word in the Greek language. I barely can pronounce this. I don't expect you to have to do it either. But it's, it's broken into two parts. Apo sunugagos. Sunugagos is synagogue. It's Greek for synagogue. And apo means out, ex. So excommunicated. What happens when someone is excommunicated? Well, the first one that takes place is the 30-day excommunication. And in this century, in the first century, if you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were cut off from all social life. You could not do business for the 30 days you had been excommunicated. You could not go to the synagogue and worship or to the temple. You could not make sacrifices. You could not buy. You could not sell. If you suffered the permanent expulsion, it was a lifetime of separation from the nation of Israel. All the people in the nation would shun you. So imagine as a blind man, this beggar, he's never before been invited into the chambers of the Sanhedrin. He's heard about it. But as a beggar living out in the street, he's never stood inside the halls that are so finely decorated. It's more beautiful than he could have imagined. 
And to be sure, there are bowls of fruit on the tables. There are beautiful draperies hanging on the walls and the clothing that these men wear. All he's ever known is beggar clothing. They wear clothing made by tailors. He's heard about this place of these individuals with national influence. But he never dreamed how ugly that it was and how bitter their heart is. So his parents can't defend him, and he's called back into the trial. Go with me now to verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, and now I see. So he's been positively identified by his parents. The Pharisees are left with no legitimate excuse for denying a miracle has taken place. He steps back into the courtroom. So imagine this, if you step into a courtroom and before the proceedings ever take place, the judge stands up and says, I know this man is guilty. What do you say? Can you imagine a courtroom or a judge in the United States starting out a trial that way? What they're looking to do is intimidate him. The judge is trying to prejudice him. We know this man is a sinner. So the inquisitors are suggesting that they've arrived at some information while he's out in the hallway. And this information is revealed to them that he's a sinner. Some things have come to light. He's more than just an ordinary bad character. He's a violator of God's laws. What are they doing? They're warning the witness. You better see things our way. You better take our position. Give the glory to God. They're demanding that he not give the credit to Jesus. Not thinking that Jesus and God are one and the same. Give the glory to God is understood as a phrase like saying, stop lying. Another way, it was the way it's said in the Old Testament, the way that Joshua used it before an individual who came before him was this, make God a witness of what you are about to say. So when an individual in the Bible said, give glory to God, they're saying, God is watching what you're about to say. They want him to proclaim Jesus as a sinner. So his response is this, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. I can only speak of what I do know. All the arguments and all the attacks of those who do not believe cannot revise and cannot change the truth of what you know to be true. This individual is saying, I know something to be very true. One thing I know for sure. What do we know, church, for sure? Things that we've been promised. We know in whom we have believed in, don't we? That's what Scripture says, 2 Timothy 1.12. We know our Redeemer lives, Job 19. We know we have passed from death into life, 1 John 3.14. We know when Jesus appears, we will be like Him. 1 John 3.2. This individual doesn't have the benefit of all that knowledge, but what he does say is, one thing I know, though I was blind, I can see. I'm looking right at you. These are the words every believer can apply to themselves. Once we were spiritually blind, now we can see. God gave us spiritual vision. Go with me to verse 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? See, they're left with no place to go. They have no advance. 
So their response is that they're stopped dead in their tracks, and it's evident they're hoping he's going to change his account, and his patience is getting exhausted, as you're going to see in just a minute. He's now beginning to grasp how serious these questions are and where they're trying to go. He knows the questions are being asked as more than just a simple inquiry. Go with me to verse 27. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become His disciples too, do you? I love this guy. I think when I get to eternity, I'm going to look him up. He's got some chutzpah. He doesn't have any problem inviting Pharisees to become Jesus followers. And obviously, he's doing it with a little bit of a sense of uh, jab, maybe turn the knife a little bit. But he's got nothing to lose. You've got to admire his boldness. Asking Pharisees if they want to follow Jesus. Now, he expects a negative answer. But he's got the courage to ask it. In that setting, the most dangerous position that a person can personally possess is when they cross this threshold that you're seeing right here. A person who has got the evidence of who God is in front of them, and they're unwilling to step across and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Instead, you see a wall being built. And the Pharisees find themselves in a very difficult situation. You understand, if you've been in the church very long at all, how difficult it was for Paul to understand who Jesus was. Some individuals come up against such a hard wall, they cannot accept it except for the grace of God reaching out and bringing them brilliant understanding of who Jesus is. Why? Many times it's because of our baggage. The things that we were raised with, the things that our parents passed on to us. Our own previous religious traditions get in the way sometimes. Or just our desire to live our own life the way we want to live it. And that becomes a barrier. For these individuals, they've got this religious blindfold in front of them. And now they have an illiterate man responding to the very elite of society. Can you say offended? They are offended. It struck a nerve that this one who was a beggar in the street is now inviting them to follow Christ. Go with me to verse 28. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The idea of an illiterate beggar suggesting that they're interested in Jesus is more than their pride can take. So they use this very specific phrase in the Greek language in the Bible, loidoreo, meaning they reproach him. So if you can say loidoreo with your teeth clenched, they're trying to vilify him. They're throwing insults. Literally, the Greek language says that they hurl insults at him. We're not even told what they said. They're unable to handle this question. The New, England, New English Bible says that they became abusive towards him. It is really awkward when you find intelligent men who realize that they've lost the debate, and you can always tell when they've lost the debate because they begin to call names. 
You see it in political debates all the time. When an individual finds himself in an awkward place, it's a very clear indication that their position has been defeated. Now, he has never in his life before seen rage. He's heard it in his ears, but he's never seen the furrowed brow, the wrinkled eyes. And he's looking on rage for the first time in his life. And it's ugly. We are disciples of Moses. They snap back at him. Because the law of Moses has been the law of the land for years, generations. And so it should be. Jesus said He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But you are His disciple. Now to this point, this is very interesting, He's never identified Himself as a Christ follower. He's never said, I belong to Jesus. They can see it in Him. They identify him as a follower of Jesus. His demeanor is so different. They've delivered all these insults at him, and he takes it. And he's been stamped as one who belongs to God. I know that if I'm walking as a child of the light, people are going to see it in me. People will be able to identify that I belong to Jesus. Go with me to verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. It's incredible. It's extraordinary. How many people are there that are going around the nation of Israel healing blind people? And you are the leaders of Israel. How could you not know? Jesus is able to do what only God can do. He created new eyeballs for me. I can see. Now he's got a good argument. Since according to the Jews, God does not listen to sinners, and that's a misinterpretation on their part, but their position is, and it's one of their tightly held doctrines, God doesn't listen to sinners. How could Jesus have performed this miracle if he's under condemnation? So the experts are rejecting the cornerstone. When we look at Scripture, we see Paul writing about how the Jewish nation rejected their own Messiah. They're rejecting the cornerstone that God set up for them. Look with me on the screen, Acts 4.11. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So the student, the beggar from the street, the student becomes the teacher. And he begins teaching the professionals. And they're insulted by him. Go with me to verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Never before. In the history of the world has this occurred. And this humble beggar proceeds to give a theological lecture. And what's his defense? Guys, I know that you follow Moses. I know that you're Moses' disciples. But let me remind you that even in Moses' time, no one was healed of blindness when they were born blind. It's never happened in the history of the world that someone was born blind. 
And now they've been upstaged by a beggar. Irrational thinking takes place, and so they have one final insult for him. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sin, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. You feel the sarcasm? You were born in sin. That's true. He was born in sin. Just like you were. Just like I was. That's what Scripture says. Psalm 51.5, we were conceived in iniquity. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. Every one of us are covered in sin. And we can only escape that through the forgiveness of the Savior. Faith in Jesus redeems us from sin and gives us the whole new life we were meant to live. And this one is beginning to realize that. But the Pharisees are shrouded in unbelief. And they've got something that's undeniable in front of them. However, what we see is that unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and gives you the capacity to process this, they will deny the truth every single time. This is what was written for us, 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So you have friends, family members, individuals that you work with who can't quite grasp what the Bible is saying. You're seeing a fulfillment of Scripture. It requires the grace of God to reach out to them and draw them in, the covering of the Holy Spirit to open up their eyes, to give them the capacity to see. But what it starts with is the humbleness of the heart because it is confusing. It's blindness to individuals who are not believers in Jesus. And it merely starts with saying, I want to believe. Forgive me of my sins. So what do they do when they hear this? They put Him out. They're shunning Him. They're barring Him from employment, from social life, interaction in the community for life. He's been put out. The expression here in the Greek language is they violently pushed Him out of the synagogue expelling him. Now, it's fascinating to me. He's lived his entire life waiting for this moment. All 30-some years, he's waited for the opportunity to see the things that he's always heard about. And in the midst of the greatest moment of his life, when he can finally see the flapping of the wing of the songbirds, and that dust that he's been eating, now he knows what it looks like. In that moment, he's been rejected by individuals who say they represent God. And so he finds himself back outside the temple against the wall. It's cost him everything. Everything. He gained his sight, but he lost his entire community because he claimed that Jesus is the one who did this, and he knew that it was true. So after being interrogated and expelled from the community, what we find next is the great machinery of God's grace begins to set in motion. He's sitting outside the walls of the temple now, right back where he started, and it places him at the feet of the Savior, who would have known that Jesus is going to show up 
at this moment. Go with me to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now, this is a very expensive moment. We might call this a very precious moment, but it's also a very expensive moment. Think about what it's cost him to get to this point. He's given up everything, and yet something yet remains undone. And Jesus knows there's another step for him. Now, Jesus certainly understood the full weight of what it meant to go through a trial before the Sanhedrin. He knows what it means to be expelled from the synagogue. For the sake of the kingdom, this one took a stand. So if you've got your Bible this evening and you don't mind circling in your Bible, you might want to circle the word found because it says Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. You might want to circle the word finding him and ask yourself this, what does that imply? Jesus went looking for him. I know it's a very obvious answer. But our God who knows everything went looking for this one who's in despair, who just took a stand for the kingdom. Now remember, the man knew Jesus' voice. He felt his touch. He's had the hands of the Master on his eyes. And he's heard the timber of his voice, but he's never seen his face. So they begin this dialogue. That's why you see in verse 35, Jesus asked this question, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answers, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He hears the voice, he feels the hands, and the Creator touched him when no one else would when he's a beggar. Why did Jesus wait until he had been cast out of the synagogue to come to him and reveal himself as the Son of God? Because in our Hollywood version of the story, we'd love to see Jesus come bolting through the temple door and say, it's me, I'm the one. But that doesn't happen. He leaves the man on his own in the temple before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful people in the nation. He waits until he's expelled. And then Jesus comes to him. Why? There's a process here. See, it's not enough to say he is the man called Jesus. It's not enough to say he's a prophet. It's not even enough to say He's the man of God. What is missing is the belief factor. You see, we've watched him move from darkness into light. His eyes have been opened up. So Jesus asked the literal question, do you believe? And this is a call to commitment, church. He's demanding a personal decision. And it's in the face of opposition and rejection he knows precisely now what it's going to cost him to say, I believe. Because he's already lost any potential for an income or a job or a social life. He now understands that to say, I believe, is going to separate him from everything that the religious leaders say he shouldn't embrace. So Jesus uses this word, pistuo, this is the word believe in the New Testament. 
Pistuo means to have faith in. Jesus is literally saying, do you have faith in me, in my ability to deliver you, putting your spiritual well-being in my hands? So what is Jesus' response to him? Go with me to verse 37. This is where it ends. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one talking with you. You have anybody in your life who say to you, Jesus never said he was the Son of God. Take him to this passage. He's telling him directly and declaring, I am who you believe that I am. So what do we see going on here? The response clearly when he recognizes, I am the very one talking with you, Jesus declaring his divinity, verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Proscuneo. It means he went right down before Jesus. He went right down to his knees, the position of a beggar again. He takes his feet at the place of Jesus. There would be soon one day, about six months later, when I'm sure that this one would wish he could never see what he's about to see. The king of creation hanging on the cross. Do you think that he was standing at the base of the cross when Jesus was crucified? I'm sure he was in the crowd. He gave up everything for Jesus. Why would He not be there? But what we see here, church, is the worship of Jesus now replaces replaces the worship in the synagogue. He's excommunicated from the synagogue. He can't go in there anymore. But He's got something greater to worship. He's going to worship the King. The Jews put Him out, but Jesus will never cast anyone out. He does not reject anyone. You might remember that from John chapter 6. Look with me on the screen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So this individual that we've learned about over these last two weeks, this one who's been before us, he acted on the light that he had. He didn't know all the theology. He didn't know all the answers. And the roar against him was really loud. There's an attempt to throw him off the trajectory that God had for him. But let me remind you of the process. The first time he encounters Jesus, he simply says, he's the man, Jesus. The second time, he says, he's a prophet. The third time, the last, he recognizes him as the Christ, the Son. And he worships him. I felt really compelled to extend an invitation tonight to anyone who may not have ever come to the place where they professed faith in Jesus Christ. I told the staff earlier this week, we sent an email out to individuals to begin praying several days in advance for always the opportunity that there might be someone who finds themselves in this exact same situation that this man is in, that we just learned about tonight. Do you believe? Have you ever come to the place where you've said, I believe I put my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my salvation and my eternal destiny. If you've never done that, I invite you tonight to respond to the opportunity to do that. What I'm going to ask you to do is stand up with me and I'm going to pray for you, all of you, if you stand together at this time. I'm going to pray for you and if that question is resonating in your heart and you wonder if you've ever responded to that in a way that would put you in the place where you could say, I am a disciple of Jesus. 
If you look at that question, you would say, I've never done that, and you would like to, I'm going to invite you to come up and talk to me after the service. I'll just be standing over here on the side. But right now, what I would like for you to do is pray with me. If you're a believer this evening and you have your faith in Christ, would you pray along with me for those who may not be there yet? Let's pray together, church. Father, we're before you as individuals who recognize there is no way to get to heaven except by the Lord Jesus Christ. You said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. You caused men to write it down thousands of years ago. It's still true today, Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Him. So Father, I ask that Your Spirit would be at work right now in this auditorium, that there might be an individual here who needs to place their faith in You that have never done that before. And they feel the press upon them of the Holy Spirit right now. God, I ask that You would cause that individual to respond to this invitation. That they would see this as their opportunity for a brand new beginning, a whole new life with You. A chance to be shed of the sins of their life. God, to confess that we all need You. And a chance to start all over again. Father, I ask that Your Spirit would convict those individuals who might need to respond to that not only tonight, but in the services tomorrow. This story is so compelling, Father. I pray for the believers who are here tonight, Father, that they would look at this act of boldness, this courage, the one who recognized that it cost everything to name the name of Christ, and that You would give us that same courage in our life. Give us that same sense of boldness, Father. God, I especially ask for those who may not have ever professed You, that You would cause them to respond. We ask this in the name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, church. See you next time.